Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the digital team at SavannahNow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me for the August 21st episode is Chuck Watson of Enki Research, whose public profile climbs around this time every year as storms march across the Atlantic Ocean. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. You know the organizations and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces. But do you know why they are Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. Again, my name is Adam Van Bremer, and I am the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Chuck Watson who I have dubbed the Storm Whisperer. He is a data analyst who specializes in natural hazards modeling, and as a Savannah resident, he's particularly looked to on his expertise regarding hurricanes. Here's the Difference Makers interview with Chuck Watson. I'm joined on today's Difference Makers by Chuck Watson of Anki Research. and it's, it's August, so it's a time of year when more and more people are paying attention to Chuck's Facebook page and Chuck's blog and everything that has to do with a certain natural disaster that's very common around here, and that's a hurricane. I shouldn't say very common. It's not that common, but every year we are on the lookout for it, and it's uh, it's always a constant threat. But, Chuck, before we dive too deeply into it, actually, before I even start that, I want to ask you. So I looked around on the web, and I've seen you described as a disaster modeler, a catastrophe modeler, a risk assessor, a natural hazard analyst. I've called you in a newspaper the storm whisperer because you're always kind of keeping us, giving us the insights that we really need when the hurricanes are approaching. Uh, I know you are an economist, a geophysicist. Uh, if you had to kind of sum up what you do, who you are professionally, what kind, what label would you use? Gainfully unemployed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Man, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I would have to say that mostly I am a systems analyst, and I don't mean that in the traditional computer sense. What I mean of that is somebody who analyzes how systems work and, more importantly, how they break. So that's a lot of you know, data integration. It requires a fairly deep understanding of a lot of different fields. And so mostly what I do is I work with, with data and models of data and how, more importantly, how decision makers take information, analyze it, and convert it into, take data, convert it into information, and then use that information to make a decision that then has real-world consequences, which produces more data, and you rinse and repeat that process. The man behind the curtain. 
we'll add one more label, the man behind the curtain. I like that. Well, so, I guess it, it's, so let, let's start, let's go back and, and start at the beginning. I guess we could say is, is you are a, you are a local Samanian. Can you talk about growing up here? I know you, you attended the, the local schools. Um, what was it like growing up in Savannah? What part of town did you grow up in? And, and what were some of your interests as a child that maybe fed into what you're doing as an adult? Yeah, you know, I'm actually not a native Savannah. Um, I was born at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, North Carolina. My parents were actually, my mom was 45 when she had me. So okay. I was in the light. I actually have a brother and um, my brother and sister. Uh, my brother has uh, a daughter that's, I think, six months younger than I am or six months older. I can't keep that straight. So we'll say that <laughs> somewhere in that range. And so, yeah, um, my dad was in a year or so of retiring from the Air Force. And uh, he then taught in the community college system in North Carolina for five or six years. And he then uh, actually started the electrical technology department here in at Savannah, what was then Savannah Vocational Technical School. Oh, okay. So that was, we moved here, and I, I guess I was seven when we moved here. It was absolutely against my desires and recommendations because we were moving <laughs> from this really neat place in North Carolina that had rocks and mountains and all kinds of cool stuff to this flat, Festering malarial swamp is what it felt like. So, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, so once you get to, to know Savannah, of course, the, for me, the terrifying thing was the beach and the waves and all. But uh, you know, eventually, this became home. And so, yeah, I finished out. So I I think I was probably the second class at Largo Tibet Elementary School. Um, is that right? Yeah. So they had just opened. Uh, you know, Tibet was a dirt road back then. Uh, it was about, we had moved into the Wilshire subdivision, which was, of course, new. And, you know, Savannah to me is an interesting place, and growing up here was really interesting because as I look back on Savannah now, I can see there's several Savannahs. There's the military community, which is really what we were part of and pretty embedded with. My dad was retired, but he still, you know, we didn't go to the mall to shop. We went to the PX, uh, we went to the commissary. So it was still very much embedded in that military environment. And it's kind of a community unto its own within Savannah. Uh, that's not to say there's not interaction. And, uh, and being part of that, the military has a great love for Savannah uh, between Fort Seward and Hunter. Um, and, of course, Marine Corps Air Station as well. But it is kind of its own community. And then it was interesting getting older and going to um, – I went to high school. I went to Benedictine Military School, and so then that's starting to interact with a, a whole wider community. That you look at uh, the old Savannah, the uh, Irish Catholic community, and getting to know them and being involved in that part of the community. And of course, there's the community that at that time, in particular, was rather overlooked and uh, I'd even go so far as say downtrodden African American community. Right. So you look at how Savannah is split up into these different groups that don't necessarily interact so much. And once I went off to college, I started at Georgia Tech. But pretty quickly from there, I got involved with uh, a DARPA project and then ended up going up to the University of Maryland. And as I mentioned in our sort of pre-discussion, there's some areas that are going to suddenly jump ahead because uh, – <laughs> 
I have spent a lot of my career working for various aspects of government. And, you know, it's funny. I did an interview with BBC. This is maybe 10 years ago. And during the discussion, the presenter asked me, well, did you work for the intelligence uh, agencies? And I just kind of laughed and said, well, you know, that's kind of a, a pointless question because if I say yes, you can't prove it. If you call, you know, pick an alphabet agency, they're gonna they're gonna say, well, we neither confirm nor deny. So that's option A. Of course, a lot of times they're gonna say, well, no, that person never worked for us when in fact they did. And the flip side is also true. There have been a number of cases where the agencies have said, oh yes, that person works for us, and they had no affiliation with them. So. Right. After after I went through that, the presenter, uh, she kind of laughed and said, oh, so you, that means you did work for you. <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't answer the question. Right. So, you know, and I think it's kind of pointless anyway, because right. you know, I think that there's a lot of different aspects. And people tend to try to ride that and make their life mysterious or make it as if they are – you know, they know things, but, you know, the bottom line is most of the work in the military intelligence of various aspects is utterly boring. And one of the areas that I did some work in that I guess you look back and almost say it was pioneering is the subject of open source intelligence. And that's a an interesting area because it turns out, especially once the internet and you start getting the interconnections, particularly late 80s into the 90s, there's just such an amazing amount of information that you can uh, figure out pretty well what's going on, even if you don't have access to the classified stuff. Right. And one kind of funny story from a little later in my career is uh, during the uh, lead up to the invasion of Iraq, uh, 2001, 2002, there was a problem in that they needed to do, we needed to do briefings for people that, if you recall back then, there was a couple year backlog for people getting security clearances. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to put together an unclassified briefing for a particular, in a, a Navy surface warfare unit. And so I have a lot of connections over time with the international community. I've done work with the UN, an organization of American states, various groups like that. So, I, you know, I called in favors from them. I've had some involvement with, uh, yeah, after the fall of the Soviet Union with Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. And so, yeah, I made a lot of calls. I called in some favors from folks in the UN. And so I put together, I had pictures with docs in Basra, and I had all this detailed information. I sent it in. Didn't hear anything for a week or so. Then I get this call and say, "Oh, we had to classify your briefing because it was better than the one the CIA gave." <laughs> so that's kind of the point of that whole story is that right. with all the information that's available, a lot of times just having a lot of information isn't enough. It's how you filter and interpret that information, and that's particularly dangerous for the average person now because you can go online and find all kinds of stuff. How do you filter it? And that's right. where journalism and the media is so vital in not interpreting and filtering, but in assessing the quality of information, making sure there's a diverse uh, set of data, information that's presented to people, but not falling in the trap of biasing that information. And yeah. that's a, a tricky, tricky world that you guys live in.
yeah, it's a it's a daily it's a daily struggle, and it's it certainly is something that you know you think the internet makes uh, our lives in terms of research and a lot of other things much simpler than it was because I, I can remember doing journalism before the age of the internet, and yes, it does make it simpler, but it also makes it a little bit more complicated. So we are going to circle back and talk about a lot of those things. Before that, though, I, w- I want to back up because you, you mentioned something in passing. You talked about the waves at the beach. So I take it when you were a kid, the water was not your friend? Oh, I was terrified of it. Um, shortly after we moved here, um, folks that long-time Savannah residents may remember, there were these old wooden pilings that were part of the beach re- or the sand retention out at, uh, I guess then it was Savannah Beach. It was at Tybee. And my mom fell and got brushed against one with uh, a wave and hurt her leg pretty bad it got infected and it was uh um it was pretty rough she spent quite a bit of time over at the pace hospital and uh at hunter and uh it was um a pretty scary thing for a seven eight year old kid to you know one of your first trips to the beach and your mom gets knocked down by this big wave and ends up in the hospital so Hmm. yeah it uh it took me quite a while to get over uh, uh being uncomfortable around the water Right. Did that one incident, can we extrapolate that and talk about, you know, you, you, you tend to have a little bit of a fascination with with storms and other things, or is that reading too much into it? You know, that would be a great story, and uh, why don't we run <laughs> right. with that? Which, again, says the whole thing of how the danger of it, doing extrapolations, because, right. yeah, that would be a, that would be a great story. It's unfortunately uh, absolutely not true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I might have well, I took a, I took a I shot. Was, yeah, yeah, I was with it. You know, if you want to look at that, probably going back my interest in geophysics, which I guess, you know, trying to figure out who I am and what I do, probably high on the list would be geophysicists or geophysics, which encompasses ocean atmosphere and solid earth, cryosphere, the ice, the interactions between all of those aspects, even the biosphere is uh, within the realm of, of geophysics. And so that's where growing up in North Carolina with the mountains and the rocks that uh, that kind of drove things. But, you know, you think of uh, there's a, a, a saying from the, uh, Lao Tzu that, uh, you know, water is the softest thing on earth, yet it can carve rocks. Well, right. you know, you look at what's now the beach at Tybee is what's left over bits of the uh Georgia Mountains, Appalachian Mountains. So that just that whole process. So that probably growing up in North Carolina and the just being around the rocks. And you know, my dad was uh, you know, taught electrical engineering technology. So he was uh, applied engineering is just applied science. My mom was uh, uh, an accountant and was. Yeah, it's funny because she was so amazing at being able to do columns of numbers in her head. It turns out I'm terrible at basic math. Um, you know, I can do partial differential equations in my head, but mm. it was I didn't actually do well at math until about the third semester. I, you know, I had basically B's in calculus until I got to about the I guess third or fourth semester, at which point it's like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then, you know, I was getting A's in uh, some of the more obscure uh, <laughs> aspects 
of calculus that you'd maybe five math majors take the course, and I was loving it because I could do that. But, right. you know, but my mom was always disappointed in me that I couldn't multiply two numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me she could look at what you were doing today and and and, and change her change her attitude along those lines, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean she and she did uh, she. I, I, both my parents, fortunately, I think. Uh, they passed away about uh, 15 years ago, and uh, they so they, they got to, to see me as not entirely a failure, which was not. <laughs> we are speaking with Enki Research's Chuck Watson on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is a centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now, back to the discussion with Chuck Watson. So you mentioned we, you finished VC, you started at Georgia Tech. At that point, was was science geophysics? Was that the way you were? Was that the way you were aiming yeah. when you? Yeah, when you went? yeah. I uh, I started out. I was going to major in aerospace engineering, but at the time, the shuttle program was getting started, and I actually started out with a work study with NASA, and it was pretty clear. I had a really good mentor who told me that if I went into NASA, I'd end up being miserable because he said the shuttle's going to suck the life out of the, the American space program for twenty years. And <laughs> I, he, the guy said Bill Meyer. He was the uh, he designed the reaction control system for the Mercury capsule. The guy was a great engineer, and he was absolutely right. If I'd gone that route, I probably would have been miserable because you know. And it wasn't twenty years; it was thirty years that mm-hmm. the shuttle program basically froze the U.S. space program and and a lot of the manned space program anyway. So I switched over to electrical engineering and. I encountered some interesting people at Tech, as you know. There's a lot of uh, Defense Department military research there, and uh, so I ended up getting into that world, and then moving up to University of Maryland to, to work on uh, with some research, and uh, kind of got recruited into things. And at that point, we're going to jump ahead ten years. Right. Let's let's jump ahead. So, so when did you leave government service, and and at that point, what did you want to really kind of focus on? Well, you know, you never really leave government service. Um, that's another common myth, uh, especially in certain aspects of it. Uh, you may leave full time. You may lo- no longer be uh, in that world full time. But, uh, you know, I started doing consulting and uh, I started working with actually while I was trying to figure out what to do. I spent a couple of years at the. Uh, uh, I worked at, for the town of Hilton Head Island setting up their geographic information system um, okay. while I was trying to figure out the uh, stuff. And so then I, after that, uh, I, you know, I started, I was still doing some defense department consulting and then I moved on to working just about full time with the organization of American States and the um, several UN agencies on uh, um, disaster preparedness, emergency response, particularly remote sensing Mm -hmm. uh, and using satellites. Because at that time, this is the uh, early to mid-90s, was just an amazing time. The Soviet Union had collapsed. So, you know, 
if I'd stayed in, I would have been out of a job anyway. Evil Empire fell. Although, you know, what's old is new again, I suppose. But uh, I came into a world where a lot of the classified technologies were becoming more open. So, in fact, with OAS, what I was doing is using a combination. The great thing about it is a lot of these agencies came out and said, well, you know, you can access our data, but you have to ask for what you want. Yes. So that's a catch. It's a catch-22 because, you know, if you've never worked with the classified information, then you have no idea what's there and you don't know what to ask for. Right. So I knew what to ask for and what to get. So I was doing projects in the Caribbean. Some of the bathymetric maps for places like Jamaica hadn't been updated since the, the British Admiralty did them in the 1800s. Hmm. And so... I was using satellite data and multispectral data, radar data, to get the near shore bathymetry to be able to to build the computer models to do the storm surge maps. And so I did that for the entire Caribbean for both CARICOM and the OAS. And that was when I really got more into the decision support side and analysis. One of the great examples is in Belize. There was a storm in the 60s that killed probably 20,000 people. Well, I redid their evacuation hazard plans, helped their ministries work on that. There was a, a storm almost identical to that one that hit in the late 90s after we had done our plans and worked with the government of Belize. And you know, there were like two pe- two casualties, and they were American tourists who decided to ride the storm out in a sailboat in the middle of the, the harbor. So, you know, those kinds of things, I can look at successes like that and see how the technology, the computer modeling, the modern analysis, you know, I can, it, it's kind of gratifying because I probably made the lives of millions of people across certainly the Caribbean and Central America measurably better and that's uh that's something kind of nice to look at so you've you've been working with modeling pretty much since since we started using technology or computers anyway to to really do modeling how 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 has it evolved how has it gotten better how has it gotten more complicated than it needs to be oh no not at all it's it's interesting because i it's funny you mentioned before that about uh, you had were involved in journalism for the internet. Uh, you know, I don't remember really not having a computer. Uh, I built my first computer when I was 14. Um, my dad brought home uh, a bunch of parts basically and said, here's the schematic and here's the parts in the soldering iron. Um, you know, have a nice summer. So I, uh, I mean, he helped it quite a bit more than that, but uh, that was the bottom line is I had to build the thing before I could use it. So that gave me a pretty deep appreciation of the technology behind computers. And so, you know, I've had an email address since I was 17, um, which, you know, I, I don't understand a lot, a lot of my contemporaries for a long time with my wife. I was kind of puzzled because it's like, like you're learning how to use email. What do you mean? You didn't have one in college. You didn't have one. And, you know, it's just you think about how prevalent that cell phones and that and, and computers and that technology. I grew up with it. So, yeah, I'm kind of on that cusp. I, I guess I'm technically Gen X, but... Yeah, I probably have a lot more in common with even a, a millennial from the standpoint of I just grew up with this technology. I don't even think about it. I, I didn't have to learn it. Is it is either a teenager or an adult? I just grew up with it. So to answer your question about the modeling, um, it's it certainly gotten a lot better. 
And it's certainly the complexity is, is so extreme now that that raises a whole set of complications as well, because if you look at how computers, computer modeling, data analysis is used in our society, fewer people can understand it. And you think of something like, you know, how many people really understand how a microwave works? Much less the kinds of technology, for instance, um, I'm looking at this iPhone that we're using to, to communicate through. There's a, a, a component in it that's called a tunnel diode. And it, you know, I've tried to explain that a tunnel diode to people before, and you kind of boil down to it's magic. Right. Because it's so dependent on quantum mechanics. You literally, you have a junction that an electron cannot go through that junction. It basically disappears on one side and reappears on the other without moving through the intervening space. Mm. And the, you know, I, I can show you the mathematics of it and I can try to explain it, but at the end of the day, at some point, you're probably just going to, if, if, unless you can understand the, the higher level math and there's, you know, probably only a few hundred thousand people in the world that can, at some point, you're just going to have to take my word on, on it and say yeah. it works. And so the kind of modeling that I work with is so incredibly complex. It's hundreds of thousands of lines of computer code that do, for instance, a, a hurricane forecast or a damage forecast. We've reached a point in our society where the average person, even the average well-informed person is not going to be able to understand the details of the information and the sourcing of the information that they need to make everyday decisions. And then when you put somebody, like you get somebody who's a politician or a political leader, it's a nightmare. You look at how they're dealing with information that it takes a lifetime to develop the expertise to be able to even present that information much less be able to originate it directly. Yeah, we, we've created a society that's very dependent on not just technology, but technocrats. Yeah, right. that's a key point that I'm concerned about is I don't think we've trained our people who are technocrats, who are the keepers of that technology. I don't think that those of us who are in that business have been particularly good stewards of that or in terms of teaching decision makers how to use that in a way where they trust us. Right. That's interesting because obviously you're talking more decision makers, but with your blog and your website and the stuff you do with the public that's out there for for everybody and everybody has gotten to the point at least here in town in terms of really respecting, if not completely trusting, uh, what you're modeling and what you're telling them when it comes to in particular storms. Uh, can you talk about taking a dispassionate view on these kind of things and and how uh, how effective that could be in terms of, of helping guide things versus what you were talking about before in terms of, of trying to weigh, you know, if you're a decision maker trying to, to figure out all of these this information that maybe isn't relevant because, it's, you know, whether it's politicized or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, that's an interesting point because every single person in this community is a decision maker. You know, mm -hmm. when you decide to walk out that door to wear a mask or not wear a mask, and you're basing that on something that you read on the internet, you're a decision maker. You know, I, a more direct answer or a more direct example, uh, I had a, there was a, a family that um, they had just 
given birth to a couple of premature babies, then they had just left the hospital. And so they're trying to decide whether or not to evacuate. Well, right. you know, those, those kids aren't that, you know, they were still in a risky period. The risks for them of evacuating during this particular storm were pretty high. I mean, if they got caught out on the road someplace when one, if, and one of those kids had a medical emergency, well, they would have lost that child. So if you look at the one-size-fits-all kind of guidance that tends to come out, say, for a hurricane, they're talking to the average person. They're not talking about this family that, you know, they've just come home from the hospital with those kids, and they may need to go back to the hospital on short notice. And, in fact, that's exactly what happened, that one of the, uh, one of the kids had a crisis, but because they stayed, got them to the hospital, and uh, the hospitals, of course, were still open because the storm actually was didn't come here. So it, it's a, when you talk about it, it scares me in one sense. It's funny. I had a conversation with uh, my doctor that uh, about the difference in this and that, you know, doctors tend to deal with death on a, a retail. You know, you've got a patient in front of you. It's scary because you're making life or death decisions about them. You know, when I'm doing stuff, it's tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands, as I mentioned, the Caribbean, there are millions of people dependent on stuff that I did 10 years ago. So mm. it's kind of a, you know, it, it, it's a scary thing that doesn't bear thinking about too much, honestly. But what you do is you do your best and you, you collect the data, you try not to have an agenda. And as far as the local guidance, you know, again, I've trained emergency managers. I one of the different things I've worked on over time is the Florida um, local mitigation strategies. And so I trained every single county level manager in Florida back in the early 2000s. And, you know, they have a miserable, tough job because you're caught in between science, you're caught in politics, you're caught in, you know, public relations. Mm-hmm. And so I, that sometimes I come across maybe as a little bit harsh on on some emergency managers and it's really not intended that way because they're in a tough place and I don't like to be in a position of second guessing and, and I wouldn't if you notice on the blog and I'll always say well you need to give a lot of credence to what your emergency managers are saying because they do have special training they do they're in a tough place and for the most part what they're telling you to do is going to be right but the problem is that Sometimes there are other agendas when you start to get that intersection of politics. And, you know, one of the things that I do have a problem with lately is what I call law enforcement mentality towards emergency management. You know, when I first got involved in this, it was mostly civil defense guys. And I got along great with them. I mean, you know, because we're, you know, a lot of them were retired military officers and they were dealing with. Their, their big scenario was nuclear war. And so their attitude is, hey, I didn't get vaporized. It was a good day today. I'm not worried about a hurricane. <laughs> but more importantly, the attitude of the most civil defense people that came out of that era was you've got to count on the civil population because government's not going to be there. You know, the, most of the nuclear war scenarios were assuming that functional government was going to fall apart. So you had to make sure that you had a lot of local resiliency. And so that was probably easier to do back then. For one thing, now with modern logistics, you know, just in time, transport, warehousing and transit, you know, it used to be a city would have maybe a week or two of food available. Now it's 
24 to 36 hours yeah. for an emergency. You know, from an emergency management standpoint, that's a that's a scary place to be because if you keep a population in place and you lose power, you get trees down, transport's disrupted, it, it, it's, it's a dangerous thing. But the flip side of that is the old civil defense guys were trained to think of the people who stayed as a workforce. That was how you got the roads clean. You didn't, you know, and what's interesting here is after some of the storms, you know, the first people out cleaning up our streets here in the Parkside neighborhood were our residents. And so that got our community back functional and normal faster than if everybody had left and waited for the city to do it. So, you know, you've got to try to balance those things. And I think, unfortunately, modern emergency managers tend a little bit too much toward the law enforcement. They're more concerned about control and liability than they are about getting stuff back to normal. But again, it's a tough balancing act, and I have a lot of sympathy for those guys. Another aspect of that is is people tend to worry about everything these days. You know, every time a, a storm blows off the coast of Africa, everybody's everybody's staring at it and, and starting to get a little bit nervous. And it's not just hurricanes, right? It's we've seen it a lot with this COVID nineteen, and uh, you got twenty four hour news networks that are feeding the that are feeding the beast and. As you look and you hear people talk about natural disasters and, and that kind of thing, are people worried about the wrong things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they don't under, and part of the problem is there's a natural tendency to focus on worst case scenarios. Sure. Well, you know, the worst case doesn't happen most of the time. Um, what I try to do in the blog and in my training and commentary is get people to focus on two things. There's the scenario you should plan for, and then there's the most likely thing to happen. And so those the planning scenario is going to be what we call a bad case, but it's not going to be the worst case. The problem with the worst case is a lot of times – with the worst case scenario, it's like the nuclear war scenario. You throw up your hands and say, well, you know, that's all, folks. Uh, you know, if you look at a, a Category 5 coming into Savannah, you know, you leave, and there's nothing going to be here when we come back with foundations. Yeah. So, you know, if every storm you treat as a Cat 5 hitting Savannah, well, it's crazy because you can't. It, 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 it's insane. And so trying to get that balance of, understanding not everything is a catastrophe every time. So what you have to do is make a distinction between inconveniences, hazards, danger, and catastrophe. That's how I kind of like to split things out. So if you look at a tropical storm, there's very few places here, and I would almost say virtually no places in Savannah that are truly catastrophic for a tropical storm. There's a few places that may be hazardous because you'll get some flooding, but mm-hmm. it's not likely to flood to the point where you're going to drown if you, you know, because it's going to be over your head. Yeah, um, the Coast Guard's yeah, not we'll, pulling off the roof of your house, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you, if you guess wrong in that circumstance, it's hazardous, but it's not necessarily going to be, not every situation is life-threatening. And so the problem is when every situation gets presented as life-threatening, two things happen. First off, people's anxiety goes through the roof, and anxious, scared people don't make good decisions. That's like rule zero of emergency management. But the other piece of it is there's the old story, the boy that cried wolf, and 
you look at people on Tybee, you hear all the time, well, it's missed every single time. It's going to miss this time. And that changed a little bit. Maybe when people saw how even a bypassing tropical storm conditions made things unpleasant at Tybee. But the flip side is people wrote it out and said, that wasn't so bad. They think, oh, Matthew's Cat 2 Hurricane or, you know, strong Cat 1. I lived through that. No, you didn't. You lived through the weak side of it, which was just barely tropical storm conditions here in Savannah. You hit on a really good point is people tend to get overly stressed out and scared. And, you know, the statistics and probability is a thing, too, because not entirely joking to say the most dangerous thing the average Savannian is going to do is drive down Abercorn. And if you're not looking at the red lights every time, red lights are suggestions in this town more than actual (laughs) things that the people seem to follow sometimes. So, you know, that's one level of risk. Again, you are listening to a conversation with Chuck Watson of Anki Research. Now that we've stimulated your brain, let's do the same with your appetite. Roost Chris Steakhouse is in the midst of its semi-annual gift card sale. Through August the 23rd, that's Sunday, so act fast, purchase an $80 Roost Chris gift card for only $50. Just visit roost-chris.com and click the Buy Now button at the top of the homepage. Then follow the instructions from there. Again, that website is roostchris.com. Now, here's the rest of the Difference Makers interview with Chuck Watson. Uh, I will ask you, because I know that whether it's a natural hazard or not, the pandemic has been going on for several months now. And it's one of these that I think we're getting new data or at least new knowledge, new expertise by the day. It seems to sometimes change by the day. As you've kind of watched this go through time and, and even kind of projecting modeling ahead, what is really kind of interesting you the most about this about this pandemic and and what maybe should we be thinking about that we aren't or that we aren't thinking about in terms of pandemic yeah that's a real interesting one and uh, yeah there's the old pogo cartoon we've met the enemy and it is us and that's kind of what it seems like particularly here in the US uh, unfortunately we've not had a coherent response and understand that's not a dig against the the current the Trump administration or you know, anybody else. The problem is the U.S. structure is set up in a 17th, late 17th century, early 18th century uh, kind of worldview where you've got, and it's brilliant in its design in the sense of having distributed authority and distributed responsibility. The problem is for a circumstance like this, it makes it almost impossible to coordinate a response. Um, It's kind of funny. I've had discussions with people about, well, you know, why doesn't the president just do a a national mask mandate like they do in Germany or wherever? Well, he doesn't have the legal authority to do that. And so the flip side of that, and I, you know, our mayor, Van Johnson, I I agree with his sentiment about how, about having a local mask mandate, but the bottom line is because of the way our government is set up, that power devolved to the, to the governor. And if he chooses not to allocate that to the cities, you know, you're stuck. And so that's a real problem as we are in a fast-moving kind, you know, kind of circumstance. You think even a plague in the 1800s, you had time to deal with it. People could isolate. People could shut down. Communications, communities were self-sufficient. So it was – 
actually easier to deal with today. You know, I'd hop in an airplane and be in San Francisco in four hours, five hours. So, you know, much less, you know, in Europe in six or eight hours. So in that kind of a world, our decision-making structures and the way that diffused authority and responsibility just doesn't work real well with this kind of thing. And so that gets to the thing that scares me is how you, know, you look at, it's funny, one of the things you said is that it's changing by the day. Actually, if you look at some of the data, at the data we had we've, back in February, our uncertainty has decreased quite a bit. But what has, the problem is the political response and the leadership response hasn't really been up to things. That's one component. And that's not a dig at this the, the current president, this is a dig at everybody. I, although I, I will give the mayor a lot of credit for canceling St. Patrick's Day. Uh, yes. I hope people realized how many lives. That was such a hard decision for him to make. And so I got to give him major props for doing that. Because it was yeah, look tough. at Mardi Gras. Look at Mardi Gras and think about what happened there. Yep. And look at Louisiana. You compare the statistics between here and there. And so, you know, whatever you think of his politics, any, you need to folks should acknowledge him for making a tough call. So there's that. But, the, you know, if you look at the flip side of there's other things, too, that, you know, maybe weren't done so well. So you look at things like shutdowns. We're past that point. A shutdown only from an economic, put my economist hat on, you know, doing a shut, the shutdowns we did did more harm than good right. because we did not take that time to put into place things like testing and contact tracing and ring fencing and all those other epidemiological things that you need to do. So and that's something that none of our states have really done well. Washington state did early, but that's because they had, they didn't have that many cases and could put that into place quickly. Everybody else kind of got overwhelmed, I think. So it's a, it's a really tough situation and a lot of it is because of the diffuse authority and of course our our fractured political system and then here's where i a major point because i'm going to point the blame at those of us other than me of course who are in the, the and i'm laughing when i say that by the way um the you, know, you look at those of us that are in the the data business you look at the folks that are in the, the healthcare community did some major missteps here and i think one of the things i try to do is I don't try to talk down to people and I'm not going to try to stampede them into doing the right thing. And I think that's something that I notice the best scientists and decision makers, that's the approach they use. And I'll, I'll give you just you know two examples on that. Uh, there was a, in Kansas here just a, this last week, they published a graph and the, head of the Department of Health came out and was talking talking up about how masks really made a difference in the case rates. Well, it turns out that the, it, it did it in an entirely inappropriate way. And in fact, the case rates for counties that weren't wearing masks are less than half of the case rates for counties that put in the mask mandate. Now, that's, masks, as you've heard me say like 10 times in this podcast, masks are something that you got to do. That's a critical thing. But it, it's a complicated equation. It's a complicated circumstance in a rural area. Right. 
you know, the rates are going to be low anyway. In the urban areas, it's going to make a big immediate difference. But just because it made a big immediate difference doesn't mean it's going to drop it down to the same rate as rural areas. Well, the way they presented that data is it made it look like the urban areas were now less than the rural areas, which they were not. So, of course, what happens is people who have an axe to grind about masks go, aha, you people are lying to us about masks. They don't work. And so people in my business have to do the hard work to educate. First off, you got to do the hard work to educate journalists because you guys, you know, you guys are, are going along happy as can be talking about sports or politics or economics or any of the dozens of other things. And then all of a sudden you get dropped into this world where things like, you know, are not and reproduction rates and uh, antigen tests and epidemiology and all these terms that you've never heard of and have no training in. So it's up to those of us that deal with these kinds of things. And hurricane season happens every year. It's so funny. Or to even like this morning, I, I did a, a post about uh, derechos, which are kind of mesoscale convective complex wind system. So what happens is all of a sudden when a crisis comes up, journalists and, and folks in the media get tossed in this world of specialist terminology. And so, you know, those of us that are in that science side of business need to do a much better job of educating first off people that are in your work in journalism. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we've got to be much better about being upfront with the public about the uncertainties and being really clear about what we do and don't know. Flatten the curve does not mean kill the virus. It just means spread the virus out. And I think after a well, certain the other, time, when we reopened, yeah. everybody expected everything to be better. And guess what? It's not better yet. And everybody's surprised well, by that. Well, and there, again, that, that was a major communications failure, but also a major failure of opportunity in that the pieces were not put in place to take advantage of the shutdown. Yep. And that's point one. And point two is the shutdown was not, it was had so many holes in it that it wasn't really. <laughs> no offense to Home Depot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, no, it, it just, and so what ended up is you had these reservoirs of virus going around, and that would have been okay if you had put in place the ability to do wide scale aggressive testing and then what we call ring fencing. You know, you identify a case, you ring fence it. That's for trying to contain an out, and by the way, just interesting sidelight, uh, one of the questions, you know, how is it you know about? epidemiology and viruses. And all I'm going to say is just two words, biological warfare. Right. You know, that's, and which is also, I will add to that. That's why I can tell you on pretty good confidence that COVID's not something that's escaped from a biowarfare lab in, in China. Um, yeah. It's got some characteristics. That's a, a myth that's been going around and people saying, and it wouldn't surprise me if there was, if it snuck out of a lab, but it's certainly not a biowarfare agent. So leave that aside. But, yeah, we just didn't take advantage of it. And things like the things you have to do, like ring fencing, which is you identify a case, you quarantine the people around them. Well, you can't do that unless you can do an immediate test. And so taking two weeks to get a test back or even, you know, much more than two days, you can tell somebody, okay, quarantine for 24 hours till we get your test results. They're going to mm -hmm. do it. And they mm -hmm. can do it. Right. You tell somebody... Yeah, quarantine for two weeks. 
two weeks. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not believing it because first off, they've got to go get you know Cheetos and cat food. Right. Right. <laughs> cat food is always important. The problem with cat food is it produces the need for cat litter, and that's all we're going to say about that. <laughs> You're going to make another trip to the store, or or, or be more efficient <laughs> in your first trip, right? Exactly. You could probably talk for a lot longer. But we're gonna we're gonna cut it off there. And I appreciate you taking the time to come in and, and give a lot of insights on a lot of things, including background. I've I've always been very, very curious and digging around and, and now I feel like I've got it from you and I, I feel like I know you a lot better. And uh I'm sure with hurricane season upon us that we'll be talking uh or at least you and Mary and Mary Landers and be talking oh, quite absolutely. Yeah. hopefully not too frequently, but quite frequently. Yeah. But, Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm sorry I didn't get to talk about nuclear war so much. <laughs> and well, foreign policy and all the other areas that uh, that are of interest. But, uh, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. And, yeah, hopefully we won't have too many more uh, natural disasters around here this year. That's a wrap on the August 21st episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to our guest, Chuck Watson, and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as convenience store magnate Greg Parker, Coastal Georgia Health Director Dr. Lawton Davis, and Second Harvest of the Coastal Empire's Mary Jane Crouch. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post September the 4th. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.